Welcome to Greystone Conversations, the podcast of Greystone Theological Institute. We invite you to join us as we explore brief scripture and theology studies, share interviews, discuss texts old and new, and listen in on Greystone special lecture events and selections from full Greystone course modules. We're delighted that you're with us today. Thank you for your support of Greystone Theological Institute. And once again, welcome. Good day to you, listeners of Greystone Conversations, and welcome back to our series of conversations related to the MAP initiative at Greystone, a mechanical arts program. I'm Mark Garcia, President and Fellow in Scripture and Theology at Greystone, and I'm here once again with my two colleagues in Greystone's MAP initiative, Joshua Klein and Michael Sacasas. Good day to you both. Great to be here. Good to be here, Mark. Thank you. Good to see you. And today we are in episode or conversation four of five, at least within this series. So number four of five. And we want to build on what we've been saying so far and admittedly a, a range of different directions. We want to build on, on those earlier discussions and reflections in a way that orients us to why this matters theologically and in terms of the, if you will, overall interest we have put on display of ethical and theological formation, how a person is formed, what factors in life, in, in the environment in which the Lord has placed us in his providence, what contextual features, what habits and rhythms of life bear upon what we mean as Christians in terms of formation, which in an important way draws from how we understand people are formed in general, not just spiritual formation in the narrow sense we are interested in, but how that is in fact derivative in certain respects from how God has made people to be, as it were. For this reason, as we have suggested in different ways so far, we could address and approach the kinds of questions we have been considering as falling in one way or another under the overall doctrine of providence and belonging to a theology of providence. Inasmuch as providence includes, according to the language of the Westminster Larger Catechism, how God has ordered all things, not only in the decretal sense, but in the fact that they are ordered and there is an order to reality, ordering us and all of our relations is therefore an inherently meaningful thing. Providence, including how things develop, are formed, how things are existentially how they are to be interpreted, identified as such and in relation. These are providential considerations in the maximalist sense of providence. And so when we are thinking about how a Christian is formed, and in particular perhaps how a minister or a church leader might be formed for usefulness and fruitfulness, it relates of necessity to our interest, which should be a serious and sustained interest and in how God has so ordered things in his creation and providentially to govern and to sustain all things in their relations to one another. This interest in the order of reality as such, as a dynamic rather than static thing, as a, a reality in organic development rather than static or position of stasis, is importance for wisdom and spiritual formation is something we're not inventing. It is, of course, uh, something deeply rooted in God's revelation and belongs quite centrally, as we have noted before, to the world of uh, the book of Proverbs and the way wisdom functions in that book. I'd like to just remind us uh, ever so briefly, perhaps, uh, what we have said before about Proverbs and the sources of wisdom in the book of Proverbs, which I think we want to see as a kind of point of departure, at least in some respects, for where we should expect to find sources of wisdom in our lives, of course, in a general sense, but also in the lives of a ministerial student, a theologian, a Christian, just endeavoring to be faithful in their own context. Where should they look to find sources of wisdom? Where should they expect to find these? And in the book of Proverbs, we've noted before, there are, there are several distinct but closely related ones. They include 
observation and experience, which is to say wise people are those who are attentive. They pay attention to life. They reflect on the meaning of their experiences. They understand why they might go look at the ant and observe the ant's ways. And from that, learn diligence. Wise people are those who learn how to stop and to think about which of their behaviors work, to use that language, and which don't work. And they take away a lesson from that. Not flawlessly, not inerrantly, but truly and really in a, in a generally reliable fashion. We've talked about attentiveness ourselves in our series of conversations together. And this is something quite deeply rooted in Proverbs as a source of wisdom. So is tradition, instruction based on tradition, which in other words is the opposite of the arguably the conscient and enlightenment innovation of self-determination as a mode of life. And however we might interpret Kant's intentions and what his colleagues of the time intended by it, I think without too much creativity, we can imagine how this has shaped much of the modern experiment. Not all of it, but much of the modern experiment is an experiment in self-determination that inherently has at least a loose grasp on the value of that which came before tradition. In some cases, it outright rejects it uh, as valuable, as antiquated, as a relic in a pejorative sense. But in the world of Proverbs, Traditioning wisdom is the ordinary way wisdom reaches us. We are organically connected to those who came before, not in merely biological terms or genetic terms, but there's a paradosis uh, reality, a traditioning reality, which to a great extent forms who we are. And this is a good thing, not a problematic thing. Instruction based on tradition is therefore a source of wisdom in Proverbs. Listen to your father's instruction. Be attentive so that you may gain insight. Listen to the instruction of your mother. Listen, listen, and listen some more. In the words of the epistle of James, the New Testament, which many have called the Proverbs of the New Testament, be quick to hear and slow to speak is, I've long thought, a catchy, memorable, but rather powerful programmatic vision for a mode of life which fits what we've been talking about. And indisposition is fundamentally contrary to the pace and the mode of life of the world, of our time, where this requires slowness, requires receptivity, requires patience, requires listening, and listening well before speaking. Learning from mistakes is another source of wisdom in Proverbs. A lot of learning from experience is learning from bad experience. And Joshua, undoubtedly, in your workshop, you've made a, a mistake or two over the years, maybe only two. But I've, I've um, heard of people making mistakes. You've heard of other people who make mistakes <laughs> in, in the shop. And Michael, undoubtedly, you've seen at least somebody make a wrong move in their use of technology and thinking about their relationship to it, perhaps. Uh, learning from mistakes is not something uh, to be ashamed of, but in a real sense, it is something to be proud of in the right sense of pride, to see as a good and an ordinary good in the life of not just mortals, but sinful ones, and ones whose lives are invariably checkered with flaws and with mistakes. So those who guard discipline are on the way to life. Those who abandon correction wander aimlessly. Proverbs ten seventeen. Learning from mistakes is one of the sources of wisdom. Uh, of course, the chief source of wisdom is revelation, divine revelation, which provides the context for how these other sources of wisdom function. What God has said provides, as it were, the framework for recognizing wisdom over against folly learning that something is a mistake rather than something to be celebrated. These are things also uh, not for us to take for granted very easily in our time, but um, revelation ordering our evaluations of what qualifies as wisdom and what isn't wisdom would seem to be quite key for us as well. Christ himself being the ultimate source of wisdom in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. These treasures which are maximally exhaustively found in him we are learning in our conversation so far include the mundane include the ordinary include the processes and not only the results 
of labor, of industry, uh, the refinement of skill over time under mentorship, under apprenticeship, under direction, rather than purely as acts of self-determination and abstraction. Modes of life which affirm the goodness as a source of wisdom, of environment, of context, of relations, of materials, of their, as it were, density and contours and resistance or reception of our efforts to make use of them. These belong to the exhaustive scope of treasures of wisdom and knowledge found ultimately in Christ. So that using materials well, learning something properly, exercising workmanlike skill, these two are gifts of Christ, rooted ultimately in him, which Colossians reminds us, who is the one in whom all things are held together, not only ontologically, if we will, but meaningfully, ethically, hermeneutically too. Joshua, Mike, as we've just kind of reviewed the sources of wisdom idea in Proverbs, are there things that we have said so far in our conversations together which you would want to bring back out here to make sure we don't miss the connection between wisdom in the world of Proverbs or Scripture as a whole and the things we have discussed in in discrete fashion along the way to this point. One thing that I was thinking about with this that I think is important to be highlighting at this point is, you know, we talked about a prior that when we're talking about craftsmanship, the primary focus should not be on our own self-improvement as an end in itself, Mm -hmm. but that what we're talking about is we're growing in the graces and we're growing in the gifts that God has entrusted to us, has given to us so that we can be mutually supportive of our mm-hmm. brothers and sisters and our neighbors, people around us. So um, ways in which, you know, when we think about loving God and loving neighbor, God has given us abilities, given us resources and capacities to be able to love our neighbors. And I think that's important to emphasize that that's what we're talking about here is we're we're not talking about craftsmanship for self-improvement we're talking Mm. about as a means to serve and to bless others you know that's very helpful yeah thank you for that reminder joshua as we take these things a bit forward i think this is a good opportunity to bring up a name that we mentioned very early on but have not said too much about yet and that is tim ingold tim ingold He's written a number of of works, to be sure. Some of them are monographs, and there's at least one edited volume as well. Uh, The one that I have in mind, I have several in mind, I suppose, but the one I especially have in mind in bringing up his name is his book, The Perception of the Environment, subtitled Essays on Livelihood, Dwelling, and Skill. And Joshua, I'm going to be very grateful if you can give us your take on what Ingold is after when it comes to skill. But just to introduce Ingold to our listeners, Tim Ingold is Emeritus Professor of Social Anthropology at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. Social anthropology is a rapidly changing discipline. In fact, Ingold, who is recognized as a leading scholar in this field, is precisely perhaps uh, because he is a leading scholar, also a somewhat controversial figure, a target uh, for those who would wish to propose alternative programs to the one he proposes. There is a lot of literature about Ingold. He's among the most frequently cited scholars in the literature of the discipline of social anthropology. Uh, And it is quite humorous, frankly, at times to read some of the journal articles interacting with him and he interacting with others. You can see something of the back and forth and back and forth again over some of the very, very specialized particulars belonging to the discipline and to this field. But there's an overall cast to Ingold's work that however we might negotiate some of the particular debated matters of the discussion, I think our are certainly valuable for us to account for in thinking about what we have been discussing. In this particular book, Engel, to use the back cover description as a guide, is offering a persuasive new approach to understanding how human beings perceive 
their surroundings. He argues that what we are used to calling cultural variation consists in the first place of variations in skill, neither innate nor acquired. He argues skills are grown, incorporated into the human organism through practice and training in an environment. And so they are thus as much biological as cultural. That's sounding quite a different note from what social anthropology had been saying for the better part of a generation, at least. So this is a fresh proposal on Ingold's part. And this, in turn, he says, calls for an ecological approach that situates practitioners in the context of an active engagement with the constituents of their surroundings. Now, when Ingold uses the language, and he does often, of perception, I cannot help when I'm reading Ingold to bring this discussion alongside a variety of others that I read about. And I'll mention some of them later in our discussion, perhaps. But one of them that comes to mind quickly is theoretical and philosophical and especially theological aesthetics. Since classically, the question of maybe especially theological and philosophical aesthetics is the question of perception as the traditional three dimensions of the aesthetic reality are the reality itself, the form of presentation of that reality, and then finally our perception of the presented form or presentation of that reality. And that perception on our part is the aesthetic and ethical fuzzy boundary because our perception needs to be right perception or productive or fruitful perception that depends on our appreciation of the relationship between how things are presented and how that presentation relates to that which is real. And that's fascinating, I think, because of the strong ties to what Ingold is wanting to say about our relationship to our environment as perceivers and his notion of skill, in particular, as it's situated in this overall environment uh, and as it bears upon what we mean by acquisition of skill in the first place. So Ingold is a fascinating conversation partner at minimum. And I wonder if you guys could help us think a little bit about how that is the case. Joshua, you have mentioned before your appreciation of some of the things Ingold is after with his notion of skill. Could you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, sure. I think that the reason that he's been so helpful to me is, you know, a lot of discussion about craftsmanship and skill is very isolationist. It's very mm -hmm. much the individual agent and what he or she is doing. And there's not really any broader framework. So looking at Ingold, it was a breath of fresh air because he's, he's looking at this from a, a different or a broader vantage point. And so that for me is what's been helpful. Uh, and what we're talking about here is in his book, The Perception of the Environment, he has the book broken up into three sections, livelihood, dwelling, and skill, as you mentioned. And we're talking especially about this third section. It's a series of chapters focused on skill and what he means by skill. It's the, the culmination of the development of his argument. But the book traverses quite a huge array of things, some of which, much of which, you know, goes over my head in terms of anthropology discussions and the minutia of that. I'm not an anthropologist, but latching on to the, the skills section, lights were going off for me and making connections to seeing skill as much more than just my ability to control my hand, right? And so what he's focused on in this book primarily, I think, especially in this, this third section as he's really developing it, is hammering home the idea that we are socially situated agents, that when we're doing things, we're not alone, we're not by ourselves, but there's a relationality to everything we're doing in, in our lives. And so he has this concern that, that industrialism and industrial life is reducing skill as agents, our action, what we're doing, it's reducing skill to, he says, merely technical execution. He's setting up this idea that saying industrialism and technology is reducing all of what used to be techne skill down to this simple, just mechanical operation. And he said, when you set things up like this, 
it cascades into a whole way of looking at work and, and the world and people and your relationships that is just off on the wrong foot. It's interesting that he starts this section on skill. I believe it's the, the first chapter in this section where he, he defines technology. He's swimming against the current of what a lot of people think of technology. You know, so much of the history of technology is using the word technology as virtually a synonym with tools so that a hammer is technology and a bicycle is technology and a CNC machine is technology and Zoom is technology. And all these things are technologies. The development of technology, it's complexification. Things get more sophisticated and complex. So therefore, basically, a computer is a really, really sophisticated rock as a hammer, you know, that they exist on this, this spectrum that they grow, but it's basically all a tool of technology. That's mm. a very standard way of thinking about technology. It's simplistic, but that's that's what he, he ends up taking issue with because what he's highlighting, he actually makes a, a rather controversial claim in that he says there is no such thing as pre-industrial technology. He says, he uses this etymological exploration of the word technology. And technology is the word techne or craft and logos, logia, right? The technology. So it's the, the art of reason or the reason of art. It was used in different ways. But the modern notion is this idea of the reasoning of art, the reasoning of craft, the, the scientific systematic study of an examination and practice of craft. So what's important about that is he's, he's not saying that nothing meaningful can happen. And this is a big boogeyman, but what he's saying is there is a distinction between techne and technology. They're two yes. different things. It's a development. And so that's why he's saying this is just an etymological description to get at. He thinks it really helps to, flesh out the difference here. So that's why there's no ancient technology, because technology is this uh, different movement. And this is so important for his overall project. For our readers' benefit, let me just mention that you're referring to chapter 15 in the book, which is called Tools, Minds, and Machines, subtitled An Excursion in the Philosophy of Technology. And on the first page, of this uh, excursion, we have this passage, which you are summarizing for us. He says, the word technology is a compound form from two words, formed from two words, a classical Greek providence, namely techne, which meant the kind of art or skill that we associate with craftsmanship, and logos, which meant roughly a framework of principles derived from the application of reason. Just occasionally, he continues, techne and logos were combined in classical literature to denote the art of reason or the skill involved in rhetorical debate. But in contemporary usage, the meaning of technology is just the reverse, namely the rational principles that govern the construction of artifacts, or more simply the reason of art, rather than the art of reason. He suggests that that sense of the term did not become regular until the 17th century a fascinating kind of uh, launching pad for him into the whole discussion he then gives about what he's calling the philosophy of technology. Any of this sound familiar to you, Michael, in terms of questions you seek that continue to be raised in the literature? Yeah, I mean, I think the question of, of the usefulness of the word technology and how it's been understood is certainly a vital one and an important one to to take up, I think, whenever we do begin to think more critically about this, this thing we tend to call technology, I just generally note how I would even say even more recent than the Industrial Revolution has been our taking up of the term technology in the way that we mean it today, which is a slightly different point than what I understand Engel to be making. But I think it is curious to note that probably you'd have to go as early as the, the mid-20th century for the term technology to begin to be used in the way that we ordinarily use mm -hmm. it today. And that mm -hmm. there, are, there are a whole host of other terms and phrases that did the work collectively that we assign to technology, mm -hmm. the word mm -hmm. technology today. 
but that this there was this earlier, and, and I think this is perhaps the sense in which Ingold means it. Uh, it's the same sense in which you know the Massachusetts Institute of Technology is named in the mid 18th century, just after the you know the start of the Industrial Revolution, um, as a place where you study the arts of making. So it is a fascinating history, and I think generally, you know, I think the point is for my part that it's always worth clarifying what one means by it, because it, the term as popularly understood tends to obscure mm. more than anything else, I think. Mm-hmm. And Engel does mention the distinction classically between techne and mechane. Techne as the skilled making, mechane as the manual devices themselves, mm-hmm. as it were. I think there's an interesting parallel in the development of the vocabulary here. And this isn't an argument for, let's go back to how things used to be referred to just, you know, in a kind of naive way that whatever was older was better. But just making the observation about what has happened with the changing of the vocabulary, if it's meaningful or significant at all. Interesting parallel in theological anthropology with the relationship of the language of passions to the language of emotions. Uh, where classically passions was an overall category of which emotions was a part and not the whole. And it's become conventional to think of passions as emotions now. And emotions are really a stand-in for passions. And a lot of people read passions now in older literature and assume it means emotions because that's how we use the language now. There's something similar, I think, with how things that used to be distinguished are now elited techne and mechane, where now we call the devices technologies, whereas the older use of the vocabulary at least observed the difference between our relationship to the thing, our relationship to the process, the goal, the task, and that which we use to accomplish it. And techne included, if you will, the ethical dimension of of becoming unskilled in some fashion. But um, this prompts the distinction he also works a lot with of techne and technology. Is that what you're after, Joshua? Yeah, and I, I think what I find helpful with starting the conversation with that and thinking about technology that way, it kind of blew my mind because I'd never heard of anybody framing it like that, mm-hmm. was because when you look at the definitions of technology that are offered, to be at all faithful to the broad diversity of usages of the word your your definition has to swell into this massive paragraph definition that's incomprehensible. He actually has one example of such a definition. And he said, you know, it's just hard to even in, engage with that. So mm-hmm. I found that helpful just to say, okay, whether or not we want to accept the particular terminology, the terminology is not the point. But he describes technology, this character, the difference between techne and technology. He says um, that we're embedded in these social relations. He studied with um, reindeer herders and this um, traditional hunter-gatherer community, and he was studying the way that they interact with each other and relate to the reindeer, that it's a, it's kind of like farming and it's kind of like hunting. It's actually like a blurred line between the two, the relationship of them and the reindeer. And so he was talking about the way that they use their lasso and the way that they relate to the reindeer and they relate to each other and describing that that was part of his early research in his career. And he's building off of that experience and showing that that's not a technological way of thinking about reindeer or lassos, right? But that it's a, it's a relational thing. And so he Mm -hmm. describes technology not in, he says it's not, we should not think of it in terms of complexification. As I mentioned earlier, a hammer becomes a computer ultimately, right? But that we should think of it in terms of externalization. And so he says it's externalizing. He says it's a process of disembedding the technical from the social. So he means the things we do, our work, is embedded in a social relationship with things and people, right? We're embedded in into that relationship. And technology is a disembedding of the technical from the social. It's a separation. And so a lot of the effect of efficiency and speed and quantification is built upon this separation between th- this messiness of social relationships and efficient production. And I think that's what he's really trying to get at, that the heart of craftsmanship is a, is an attuned 
you know, as we've been talking about, an attuned relationality, understanding the reindeer and the lasso and the people you have to feed, that's the heart of craftsmanship. And a technological way of approaching the problem of feeding homo sapiens who dwell with you, who live mm-hmm. in, in your house. It's a very different way of looking at the world and thinking about your work. And so I think that's really uh, an insightful, helpful way to think about being a creature made in the image of God, being here in creation, what our work is. We can take on this this modern technological way of preaching or shepherding the flock or, you know, giving a cup of cold water. Why would I, who cares if I'm holding the cup of cold water? Isn't there some way I can just, you know, email a gift card to someone and, you know, and so there's this recognition that he's saying we can't just extricate ourselves from the social relationships, technologize all of life. Ivan Illich was so concerned about the institutionalization of all of areas of life. And it's a very similar kind of thing that Ingold is concerned with here. So I think that is very helpful to bring craftsmanship to, to re-embed it in its social relationships. So while Michael will be happy if I arranged to have a bottle of wine sent to his address, he would appreciate it even more if I showed up on his doorstep with a bottle of wine and said, let's enjoy this one together. Um, yeah. I think that's probably right. I know I would enjoy that more. Yeah. I, you know, the, I appreciate the mention of Illich. So, so much of um, Illich's critique was precisely that we are being, I don't think he ever used this term, but I frequently use it to describe his concern, which is that we're being de-skilled. But their their capacities, natural human capacities for care, for work, for relationship. And increasingly we, again, not his word, but we outsource these to institutions. So, if, you know, when he writes about uh, tools, he, he means both institutions and what we think of uh, more concretely as, as a tool or a technology in, in the sense that we use the word technology as a noun. But that in each case... Uh, whether it is the the tool as we conventionally think about it, or or the institution, the modern industrial institution, uh, we are outsourcing skills, relationships, forms of care to these institutions, and it's a matter of also de-skilling ourselves. What we outsource, we lose uh, the capacities mm. we lose. I was thinking, I just had a friend email me a quote from an interview, part of an interview that the late American author Kurt Vonnegut gave. And in it, uh, this one's been relatively late in his life, he's asked to comment on a part of, of, of a book that he had written where he'd given an anecdote where he's going out of the house to buy an envelope. That itself is quaint, right? That, that he would need an envelope, which presumes that he's mailing a letter. Uh, but his apparently his wife stops him and asks him what he's doing. And, and Vonnegut takes up the anecdote at that point and says, well, she says, you're not a poor man, you know, you can, you, you don't have to leave. You can go online and buy a hundred envelopes and put them in the closet. And so Vonnegut says, so I, you know, I pretend not to hear her and, and go out and get an envelope uh, because I'm going to have a hell of a good time in the process of buying one envelope. I meet a lot of people. I see some great looking uh, folks and I, a fire engine goes by and I give them a thumbs up and I ask a woman what kind of dog that is. And, and I don't know. And of course, he, then he says, and of course, computers will do, uh, do us out of that. And what the computer people don't realize or they don't care is that we're, he calls us dancing animals. Uh, you know, we love to move around and we're not supposed to dance at all anymore. So that's, that's the Vonnegut quote, but I think he, he gets it. That's terrific. Yeah. And we can see this across a whole range of, even over, I think the course of the last two years has intensified significantly where we have taken even incidental human contacts out of our life, out of our, our day-to-day life as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can have virtually anything delivered to our door. Uh, we don't have to greet the person who drops it off. Wherever something can be automated so that we're interacting with a machine rather than a person, whether it's a you know bank teller or something of the sort, that is happening. And even simple things, right? You know, one example of this for my part is that, um, you know, when I, if I got lost, when I had handwritten directions, I had to stop and ask someone for directions. So in, in countless ways, right, we are being disembedded out of all sorts of both thick, meaningful communal relationships, but also even out of the kind of incidental contacts that would have been a part of everyday human life in community and in uh, relationship with others around us. 
That's so very helpful and sobering at the same time. It, it does remind me of something else that Ingold has written that we haven't mentioned, and it's a book called Lines. This, too, is a book that is somewhat controversial and has provoked a lot of uh, reaction amongst uh, specialists in certain uh, subfields of anthropology. But, the again, the overall interest of the work is not just fascinating, but I do think it's it's helpful to reflect on. It's also the result of his experience hunting reindeer, uh, just as the perception of the environment was. But Ingold makes much of that line you've undoubtedly heard as well from a philosopher of, of some kind at some point, that there are no straight lines in nature. And he argues that we have become preoccupied with points, whereas real life is a matter of lines. We're preoccupied with points as A and B and think only of how to get from point A to point B, which is going to be the straight line, even though that straight line, which is required of only thinking of the points A and point B, where I want to get, the result I want, uh, even though that relationship between point A and point B, so described, so imagined, and if you will, geometric and theoretical terms, is a straight line that simply does not exist in the real world, in real life, in reality. Because we're preoccupied with just getting the end result, however we need to arrive at it, uh, we bypass where the meaning actually is found, which is in the line between whatever A is and whatever B is in the real world. Lines which are paths, which are ways. And he was thinking about this as he's following the herd of reindeer throughout the year, which do not go from point A to point B in the shortest possible, briefest possible fashion, but are going up and down the hills and mountains and around the trees and by the brook and are doing so together as a herd. And to follow them requires that he take a line that is not the straight line. Now, of course, when that philosopher has you know, said that there are no straight lines in nature, everyone starts trying to imagine that there are and tries to find examples. No, there really are straight lines. Think about trees. Think about this. But the point is well taken. Even if you look closely enough at a tree, you're not going to find a straight line, as Joshua knows all too well. Um, you have to make them into straight lines if you're going to have straight lines. They aren't. They don't occur as straight lines as such in nature. But the... The parabolic significance of what Ingold is saying is is what I'm most interested in here. There is a mode of life which respects the meaningfulness of the path, the way, the line, rather than only the plotted points, getting from here to there in the most efficient way possible. It's what we've been talking about in a variety of ways in our series so far. Ingold is providing, I think, some help in imagining how we might uh, conceive of it, too. This is one of the ways we can immediately recognize the the upshot theologically, hermeneutically, pastorally, for Christian life generally, of these kinds of observations others have been making. It is often the case that a theologian needs to insist upon the meaningfulness of all that transpires, which we call the story of Israel, between Adam's fall and the Incarnation. It reminds us of that, you know, the medieval distinction between the absolute power of God and the ordained power of God. Could God have simply brought us in the most efficient way possible from point A to point B, Adam's fall to our redemption? Of course he could have, but that's irrelevant to the question of the form of our faith, of our repentance, of our trust, of our wisdom, and of our obedience, since that's not the reality. The reality is not what's theoretically possible. The reality is the inevitable, undeniable, and urgently important goodness and meaningfulness of the way God has, in fact, done things. His ordained and purposed providential path between A and B, which was not the straight line. Uh, the reason the Old Testament matters is not just because it looks forward to something it was always about. It remains valuable. With the coming of Christ, it isn't displaced because of his incarnation, because of his arrival. The path does not become 
uh, irrelevant because you've arrived at the destination. You have been formed by that path, by that way, and not simply by your arrival. This is true in ministry as well. If a minister sets down with a suffering saint and is only thinking about how to get the suffering saint from suffering to, to uh, relief by any means necessary, then they will bypass what God has said the very purpose of suffering is, among other reasons we might give for it, and that is to form us more fully after the image and glory of Christ. If the pastor is not preoccupied with that path, but only with a goal of relief, they will miss out on the reason for it all in the first place, uh, at least to the extent the Lord has disclosed what reasons there are for suffering in Christ to be glorified with him. This is one of many ways we can think in terms of the effects of our kind of cultural moment and its preoccupation with efficiency and outsourcing of many different ways. It's preoccupation and what it costs which is far more than dollars and cents. It costs the value, the productivity, if you will, of a different sort of relational equity and formation and the context. And like Mike was saying, watching the fire engine go by and being able to give the thumbs up to affirm the good work that is being done and to take the light in the good work that is being done, which you would not have experienced unless you took the walk to the post office to get the envelope that you could just as well have ordered with a one-click order at Amazon or whatever the case may be. There's something lost that's more than time and energy, something that is lost when we make the decision one way or another for efficiency, the plotted points, or the meaningfulness of a path, the the line, uh, something else I think Ingle might help us with. So much of this is reminding me also of Robert Capon's book, The Supper of the Lamb. Oh, what a wonderful book that is. Yes. Yeah. The whole book is this discussion of making this feast. Uh, and, <laughs> and I think it's the second chapter. He has this introductory chapter where he's approaching the onion, right? Yeah. I love right, the exactly. approach to the onion. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Wonderful. Yeah. So the first chapter, he's establishing uh, the legitimacy of his ability to write this and that he's an amateur. Hmm which means he's a, a lover of uh, cooking. And mm. so that's establishing his credentials, that he's an amateur at this, and uh, which is so beautiful and so great. But the, the next chapter, the first chapter, he says, okay, let's, let's dive into this. He's spending an entire chapter talking about slicing an onion. And, and it's, this, it's an example of a way of looking at life. Now, I, I don't think he's saying, every onion you ever should cut should take you two hours to, to slice. Because I think that's about what it takes. But he's it's an exercise. And he's not. saying, smell the skin, feel the skin, feel the paperiness that it's dry and brittle and in all the different senses. And then when you, when you cut the onion in half, all of the aroma explodes, the aroma that wasn't there before. And now is, and so he's, he's teaching you to be attentive to what an onion is. And it, so the book is fascinating because it's this wild ride of, you know, prayer and theological uh, reflection right into now slice the onion <laughs> and add it. And you're like, whoa, what, what's going on? And it's and very I think perfunctory, it, isn't it? At the very end, yes, it's like, okay, yeah. after all that, now slice the thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, but I think it's, it's a really great example of, um, mm. of, appreciating and seeing all things as created that yeah. everything created by God is good and is to be received with thanksgiving. It doesn't mean it has to, everything has to take all day long, but it should be received with thanksgiving and gratitude and, and receptivity saying, amen, Lord, this is good. Onions are amazing, Lord. <laughs> you know, hmm. Right. Yes, indeed. There's something else that comes to mind as I'm reading Ingold's work that I wanted to mention as well, and that is that what he is doing with the affirmation of the importance and inherent goodness of the relational and contextual dimensions of our engagement with reality and his thicker notion, if you will, of skill and techne, it sits very nicely alongside other work that is being done in completely different disciplines and fields, as well as something I think uh, commended in a particularly compelling way within the Reformed tradition by Herman Bovink. The social, contextual, relational dimensions of the integrity of human 
identity and existence and activity that Ingold is stressing with his work on line, its own way of affirming the meaningfulness of history, pathway, and so on, which also reminds me of Wendell Berry's work on the difference between a road and a path, a road just kind of the modern way of of forcing the issue between A and B, and the path, the way of respecting the contours and directions and twists and turns between A and B. What they're doing, I think, is in a fascinating way, similar to what is happening in the world, for example, of theoretical physics and the sciences. I won't go into detail just now. It's a rather complicated discussion anyway. But Rupert Sheldrake is also extremely controversial in a lot of ways. But his theory of morphic resonance and of morphic fields, of which he is not the only advocate and exponent, others are as well, but he's probably the most well-known. Sheldrake's model is, in the world of the sciences, its own rejection of the presumed orthodoxy, if you will, that we can explain everything in terms of so-called natural laws, which, in the way he treats them, it's as though they function as plotted points, A and B, the reliable, mechanical, impersonal, abstracted principles that govern things, very mechanical understanding of, of reality. He argues that what we call natural laws are not, in fact, natural laws, but inherited habits. We have been habituated into patterns of life and of relation and of engagement with reality that are, in his somewhat controversial theory, are in fact received by an organic reality, a whole, that functions the way fields do in theoretical physics. Think of how gravity is a field, and so it has its effects Throughout the field, there are other kinds of fields we can imagine that are theoretical constructs, but they function as meaningful terms in how we imagine them. That he argues there's a social field as well, where people who are not physically proximate can still be related. And he spreads this out over time, talks about memory as, in fact, as a morphic field, and talks about morphic resonance as the impression upon each person and generation of the accumulated memory of those who came before that impresses itself upon us in a way that habituates us to learn the lessons of those who came before us and act with the benefit of that knowledge. So he points to experiments with rats for existence, that there was a a whole multi-generational family of rats that were trained a certain way in one part of the world, later generations of the same rats in another part of the world, picked up on the skills, to use that language, far more quickly than their ancestors did. And he calls this a kind of impression of morphic resonance over time in a field theory that is social rather than, you know, something like gravity and and so on. In physics, this is a way of resisting and rejecting the purely mechanical way of understanding how people relate. Now, interestingly, in the history of the discussion, this has been the phenomena usually dismissed as telepathy and you know this kind of pseudosciences as they're often called sheldrake is coming in and saying well what people have long dismissed as telepathy is in fact explainable along these morphic field morphic resonance lines because there is an organic whole we call humanity and people are tied to each other in ways that are not exhausted by genetics and physiology, even physical location. And he goes into a variety of illustrations of how this is the case. I was first introduced to Sheldrake by his fascinating book that we're going to talk about in a completely different context in Graystone Conversations, and that is his book on why dogs know that their owners are coming home. And it's a fascinating question and discussion with with an abundance of evidence that dogs have this extraordinary ability Many of them do. They vary, of course, in their degree of skill here, as it were. But dogs have this extraordinary ability to perceive um, something happening quite quite far away from them, but related to them in some way. And they know when their masters are coming home. And they'll sit at the door because the person has left their, their job. It's a really remarkable discussion. But I, that was my way into Sheldrake's theories. 
And as I'm reading what he's doing and reading what Ingold is doing and reading what Wendell Berry is trying to affirm in a very different context, I keep going back to Herman Boving. Herman Boving, who as the more recent school of Boving scholars has helped us understand, provided us a wonderfully rich and theologically anthropological model of human relations in which human relations, ethical relations among human persons enjoy ontological status. We are accustomed to thinking of relations in purely voluntary ways, and therefore you take it or you leave it, and the ethics is wrapped up with your decision-making about taking or leaving, whether you're going to do this or not do that in certain relational contexts. Boffink is arguing, to use the language of another scholar, imposed affinities as well, so imposed affinities or natural affinities, like uh, a child belonging to a parent. They didn't choose to belong to that parent. They were born into that family. It's an imposed affinity. And voluntary affinities, especially marriage, but also all kinds of other voluntary uh, relations we enter into, both imposed or natural and voluntary affinities, these relations are ethical from the beginning, they constitute the ethical world we inhabit, and they enjoy ontological status. They really are a thing, as it were. Uh, so the thingification, if you like, of ethical relations fits ever so nicely with what others are noticing in completely different discourses, completely different fields, whether it's physics um, or cultural theory or social anthropology. It also fits the inherent goodness and meaningfulness and ordinary importance in the world of Proverbs for sources of wisdom. It's your immediate environment. It's the people you are actually surrounded with and joined to, not the theoretical person off in some distant land that you think you're related to, but the people in God's providence you're surrounded with, the work you're actually given to do, what this day actually holds for you, its decisions, its context, its dynamics. The ant on the ground in front of you, the mistake you made that morning, these are the constituent features of your ethical world, which have, as it were, so to speak, ontological significance, ontological weight. They are reality. And I, I bring all that up to say it seems to me that in God's providence, we are learning more and more of something that earlier generations took for granted um, and that we're maybe rediscovering. And that is the importance to use the Ingold image of the path, the line, and not just the plotted points. And the way things are done matters, not just whether it is done. And this bears upon discussions of the ethics of technology, as Michael has reminded us in so many helpful ways. It reflects our proper and healthy, positive relationship to the natural world, to labor, to tasks, to the acquisition of skill and what we mean by that in the first place as a communal, uh, loving one another reality and not only self-fulfillment and self-determination as Joshua has in so many ways reminded us. But in, in, in all of these respects, it brings us back to this thing that we have said from the beginning together, which I'd like you to provide last words on today. And that is the urgency as Christians in God's world, and not only as ministers or church leaders, as the case may be, of attentiveness. Attentiveness. And the dexterity that we have talked about in the context of that rightly ordered habitation of God's world. And the attentiveness that has its antonyms, that has its opposites, and a variety of things that we have in so many ways kind of warned against in our conversation so far. But are there ways in which this attentiveness pops out for each of you in light of what we've been saying today and in, and in recent uh, sessions before we wrap up for today's conversation? Joshua? Yeah, I, mean, I think in terms of attentiveness, I, I would think of it you know, connected to this idea of the relationality because, you know, when we think about, uh, say, growing in maturity in Christ, sanctification, it could have been the case that God had would say, here's a book, here's a thing that you can just all by yourself, you know, take that in and say, this is how you're going to grow. 
just study this thing or eat this pill <laughs> or, you know, could have been all sorts of ways that the Lord had determined he would grow our faith. But mm. that's not, in fact, the way that he determined we would grow in Christ. He gave us discipleship, mentorship. Um, it's related to this idea of apprenticeship. And so we're members of a body. We are, uh, we have this ontological status where we're one in Christ. And so the way that we grow is through relationship. And, um, you know, when we think about discipline, the discipline of the Lord, the sense of paideia, it's not an isolated thing. But mm-hmm. the, the, when we're attentive, what we're assuming when we talk about being attentive is that there is some context right you can't be attentive to something that's contextless you know or something that's that has no other features or other people in the picture but when you're attentive it assumes you're in the midst of a local congregation who has these particular issues or you have a you know a brother who's struggling with this one thing and you're there with him so you can only be attentive you can only grow in skill in an immediate particular context and so I think that's that is really what for me has been so helpful to understand the relationship of craftsmanship and discipleship and how those things are really, I guess it may be embedded. We could say they're embedded together. They're, they can't be separated. They're inextricable because uh, the, the work that we do is inherently social and, and related. Um, and I think as soon as we start to separate that, we're going to begin to look at life through a technological framework. And it's, it's the beginning of unraveling of these, this matrix of relationships that the Lord has appointed for us. Mm-hmm. Thanks very much for that, uh, Joshua. Mike, do you want to give us the last word for us for our fourth of five talks together? I mean, certainly attentiveness is something I, you know, thought a lot about. I think it's a, it's a key category. Interestingly, I think maybe it's beginning to suffer semantically in the same way that technology is it's a word we use uh very very broadly in a lot of different ways now but i i still think it's useful and i think at heart attentiveness i think of as a as a disposition a way of being in the world that is prepared to receive the world uh, rather than immediately turn to controlling or managing or manufacturing or making or imposing our will on it. And so attentiveness is, is a, a mode of, of receptivity to, to reality, to what is there. Iris Murdoch has written, I think, uh, very beautifully and, and astutely about the importance of attention for the moral life. At one point, she talks about a virtue that is essential here, and that is humility. And she says that humility is not uh, a peculiar habit of self-effacement. It is selfless respect for reality and mm-hmm. one of the most difficult and central of all virtues. In a sense, I think this is uh, that kind of humility leads us to the attentiveness, an attentive disposition to the world that is willing to perceive the patterns, the order uh, that is there to guide us and nurture us, that it, that is able to attend to the multiplicity of human relationships, is able to displace the self and and see reality for what it is rather than what we want it to be. Uh, There are countless ways in which I think the task before us is to cultivate uh, the virtue of attention. Uh, And so, yeah, certainly I think it's it's critical. And all of our discussions of of craft, of craft as as a way of life, I think it all implies this kind of attentiveness to reality, to the world, to the other. And, and a willingness to bend in love to that reality. It's fascinating, isn't it, how attention of that sort affirms the dignity and the and the value of that which we are attending to. It respects mm-hmm. it, as you're saying. Mm-hmm. Why do we wait for the little child to tie his shoes? Because by waiting, we are dignifying the child. We're saying mm-hmm. he's worth waiting for. Why do we do that with our elderly mom or dad who needs patience as they tie their shoes or tell that story for the fourth time? Because by waiting, we dignify them and we respect them and we demonstrate their value. Um, by attending in these ways, we're, we're recognizing the inherent dignity of how God does things and not simply affirming that he does. Thank you, brothers, for helping 
helping us think through these things today. It's a great bridge, I think, to our last discussion about these things next time in our fifth and final installment of this series in Greystone Conversations. I look forward to talking with you both further then. Thank you so much. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Greystone Conversations. Remember that Greystone members enjoy access to the entire growing library of Greystone lectures and events, including full course modules, at greystoneconnect.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, spread the word, and consider supporting this podcast with the modest donation of just $1. Until next time, thank you for your support and for spending your time with us at Greystone.